tonight for hearing about the work that you're doing to bring people in Africa. Y'all had a good meal. No complaints whatsoever. I won't ask you if you have any complaints about me. I know I kind of get a little tight there with you. Don't ask me about that. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, He who promised there is God so it tells us as Christians that God is faithful we learned in the same book in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 that God cannot lie so if God says it we know it's true if God makes a promise we know that God will keep his promise and the reason that we can hold fast as the verse would say let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering is because God is faithful so unlike man who sometimes does not keep his word God will always keep his God, if he says it, he's going to do it. Now, there can be promises that are conditional, but there are also promises that are unconditional. So we know that from God's standpoint, what he says he will do, he will always do. So when we think about promises, uh, we certainly uh, can understand that God will keep his. I want you to think about those before and after pictures. Uh, some of them are just, quite frankly, unbelievable. You know, you see some advertisement for some product, and it gives you a before picture. They show you this person and the way they look, and then they show you the after picture. And you're kind of wondering, is that even the same person? So the before looks entirely different than the after. And sometimes there can be legitimate transformation. Uh, but usually it's just almost amazing to think about that before and after. Well, I want you to think this afternoon about a before and after as it relates to the apostles. Uh, there is a before picture that the scripture paints of these men. You see men that look entirely different than the after picture that the Bible paints of them. The question is, what changed in these men? What took place in their lives? What did they come to understand that completely transformed who they were, the way they acted, the way they lived, and what they were willing to do, even for the cause of Christ? We want to look in that before and after. And it will come back to this verse in Hebrews 10.23, that he who promised is faithful. Uh, let's look at that before picture to start with. This before picture of the apostles, uh, look with me there in Matthew chapter 6. There's some characteristics that we see uh, here in these men in this before picture. Jesus uh, preaches in Matthew chapter 6, this will be the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says in verse 30, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus, of course, is trying to get across to those listening to this sermon that God will take care of you. God will provide. Uh, here in this same chapter, just a few verses later in verse 33, if you seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. You need to trust in God. If he promises that he'll provide for you, trust God. But he says this phrase, O you of little faith. Well, the disciples were present for this sermon. They would have been included in this admonition not to have little faith, but to have great faith. And yet were there occasions in this before picture that you see in this picture of these apostles where they had just that little faith? Uh, just a few chapters over, Matthew uh, chapter 8, we see a whole series of miracles that Jesus performs. Uh, there in Matthew 8 verse 3, Jesus cleansed a leper. Uh, leprosy was a horrible disease uh, thought to be at least one version of it, a neurological disease where you couldn't feel pain, and so your hand would be in a fire, just be burning off until you smelled the burning flesh. And so you'd get infections and 
your flesh would eventually start to rot. It's a horrible disease to have. A leper, according to the old law, would have to stand outside the camp, and when someone came close, cry out, unclean, unclean. This man was healed miraculously by Jesus. His flesh was restored. His body was restored. This man was healed, and the apostles saw that. Uh, in this same chapter, verses 10 and 13, uh, Jesus speaks of this uh, faith of this centurion. Uh, there in verse 10, says, Surely I say to you, I have not found so great faith, not even in Israel. Uh, Jesus healed here the centurion's servants, and the centurion was the one who came to Jesus asking for that to take place, asking if this one was healed. And Jesus says, I see greater faith in this man than the rest of Israel as a nation. But yet again, we see those who will have the contrary, the little faith. In the same chapter, verse 15, Jesus healed the mother-in-law of Peter. Now, there might be more than one way to have a brother-in-law, but the only way to have a mother-in-law is to be married. You know the teaching that Peter was the first pope? Well, the idea that the pope can't be married? Well, Peter wasn't the first pope, and by the way, Peter was married. Kind of a contradiction there in that thought. But his mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, another miracle that's performed. Uh, then verse 16, right after that, uh, Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. So in one chapter, you have miracle after miracle after miracle. Now look at verse 24 and 25 of this chapter. Uh, here, Jesus got into a boat, and his disciples followed him, so they're out here on the water. It says, Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. These are the disciples who heard Jesus preach in Matthew 6. These are the same ones that just witnessed there these miracles that Jesus did, just did. Jesus is in the boat with these men. Okay, you got all that in your minds. Verse 25, the disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. You've got Jesus in the boat. And you're afraid that you're going to die. We're going to die. The waves are coming over the boat. Jesus says this to them, Why are you fearful, O you of what? Little faith, O you of little faith. These are the men that later are known as his apostles. These are the men that are going to be sent out on that great commission to go into all the world. These are the men who themselves would have that immersion of the Holy Spirit and be able to do miracles. And yet at this moment, little faith. Uh, their little faith is also seen in Matthew chapter 14. And you probably know that account well. When again they're in a boat, this time without Jesus, and they see one coming to them, and they think at first, well, this is a ghost. Of course, Jesus identifies himself. He comes to them walking on the water. And Peter actually has enough faith to get out of the boat. He says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you. Ask me to come to you. So he does. Get out of the boat. And Peter, come to me. And Peter actually has the faith to get out of the boat and then walk on the water until he starts to look around and see what? Waves. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. And then Jesus says this here in this chapter in verse 31, Matthew 14, 31. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now he did have enough faith to get out of the boat, but when he took his eyes off of Jesus, that's where his faith was lacking. And he started to sink. Again, this before picture is one of little faith. And then in chapter 16, Again, we see this same little faith in Jesus' disciples. Uh, there in Matthew 16, verse 7, 
Jesus actually prior had spoken there in verse 6. He says, take heed of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says, they reason among themselves saying, it is because we have taken no bread. Jesus is trying to teach a spiritual lesson. They're thinking in physical terms. They're not getting it. So then in verse 8 he says, O you of little faith. Uh, why do you reason among yourselves? Because you have brought no bread. Jesus is trying to teach them a lesson, and yet what are they still lacking in? They're still lacking in faith. And he had already fed multitudes of people miraculously, and yet here they're concerned or they're thinking still in physical terms, little faith, little faith, little faith. That's not a very good picture in this before picture of the apostles, men who are lacking in their faith. I understand, as probably you do, that faith is something that we develop. Uh, you can look at many examples of individuals that once had little faith and would grow to have that mature faith. But in this before picture, these men have little faith. Uh, something else about this before picture is we see pride and we see foolishness. In Matthew chapter 20, just a few chapters later, you have James and John and their mother uh, that come to Jesus. So James 20 verse 20 says, The mother of Zebedee's sons, so that would be James and John, I came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. He said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Now, they did not understand what they were asking for. Jesus' kingdom was not intended to be a physical kingdom, and it wasn't going to be set up, that is, with a throne in Jerusalem. He wasn't going to reign over a physical nation of Israel any longer. That was going to go by the wayside. They're asking for something that they don't even understand. It's really a mark of their pride. And the other disciples, of course, are not happy with them. And Jesus tries to explain to them there in verses 22 and 23, you don't understand. And he says, do you, not, you do not know what you ask, verse 22. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able cup was the cup of his sufferings. I don't think they understood exactly what they were saying. They knew uh, the baptism, uh, the idea that they would be fully immersed in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. They would one day die as he would die. Uh, there are different baptisms in the New Testament. So the word simply means to be immersed and covered. They say, yeah, we know. We'll be able to do it. And Jesus says, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with my baptism, or the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give you, but is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Jesus says, what you're asking for is foolish. I can't give that to you. I can't give you this position on the right hand or this position on the left hand. That's not mine to give. Think about these men that Jesus has been training, and he would spend about three and a half years with them, over three years in his earthly ministry, and these men he called from their professions, and they would follow him. They would be witnesses. John would talk about how we saw, how we heard, how we touched. These men were with him. And here at this moment, they're still thinking in physical terms. Now, quite frankly, I don't think they really understood that this was a spiritual kingdom until we get to this after picture we'll talk about. They're still thinking physical kingdom, physical kingdom. Even when they're leading Jesus away on the cross, then they're thinking it's over. We're, we're going to lose our king. So this before picture not only is one of little faith, it's also one of pride and of foolishness. 
There's also something in this before picture that's not very pleasant as well, and that's in Matthew chapter 26. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they come to arrest Jesus. Of course, Judas is the one to betray his own Savior with a kiss to identify him. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 55 and 56, when Jesus is arrested, he says, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now listen to this. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. These men who saw the miracles, yes, they're growing in faith, and it's been lacking. It's certainly lacking here. These men who are still thinking in physical terms and had pride and foolishness, when it comes down to the moment that they're going to arrest Jesus, they all flee. They all run away. Initially, in the other accounts, we know that Peter drew his sword and probably was swinging to take off the head of Malchus and only got his ear, and Jesus restored that. Put your sword away. My kingdom's not of this world. And when they led Jesus away, the disciples were gone. Now, there were two, Peter and John, who followed close enough, and John somehow was granted entrance inside, but Peter stood on the outside. And we know what happens in this chapter when Peter's there on the outside. Look a few verses later down verse 69. When Jesus is in this mockery of a trial and Peter's there on the outside, verse 69, Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You also are with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. Can you imagine? Peter's one of the inner circle. I mean, he was with Jesus on three special occasions in addition to what all the others saw as well. And this man says, I don't know what you're talking about. Weren't you with him? Not me, you got the wrong guy is what he's saying. But it goes on, verse 71. When he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to, the, to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. So they're saying, no, you, you're the one, I know you're with him. But not me, wrong guy. Uh, verse 73, a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely... You also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Now, it may be, depending on where I travel, I've had people say, well, man, you must be from the South. You've got quite an accent. Uh, last summer, I was in Michigan, Mount Pleasant, Michigan, doing a meeting. The way they talked about us and our accent, you would have thought we were from Alabama. That's, I mean, they just never heard anything like it. Of course, we thought, well, you guys are from Canada, the way you're talking, but that idea of the way we sound because of where we're from. I have family in Arkansas, and they've got much more of a draw. So your speech gives you away. You're from Galilee. We can tell from the way you speak and the way your dialect is. We know you're with him. We know you're one of them. He began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times went out and wept bitterly. Here you have cowardice. These men were cowards. They ran, they fled, and even Peter, who was close enough to be able to say, yeah, I was with him, that's my Savior inside there on trial, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who that is. I wasn't with him. How sad of a picture that is. That's the before picture. Uh, these men lacked faith, they're full of pride, they're foolish, and they are cowards. Now, if you're looking for actions to imitate, those are not them. 
you don't hold up the before picture of these men and say, I want to be like that. That's the before picture. But there is an entirely different picture that we want to look at now, the after picture, the transformation of the before to the after. So we're building. Let's look at that after picture. Then we'll come back to this question, why the change? Now look at the after picture with me in Acts chapter 4. Same men that we just studied, just read about here while Jesus is still alive. When we get to the book of Acts, Jesus has been buried. He's resurrected. He's ascended. And these are the men that we're still talking about. In Acts chapter 4, verse 17 and following, Peter and John are censured. They're basically told by the same Sanhedrin council that would cause Jesus to be crucified. They're brought in before this same council. Uh, verse 17, But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in his name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. This is the religious supreme court of the day. This isn't just, you know, a side court, some small town, whatever. This is religious law. This is the Sanhedrin council. This is the, the highest rank of Jews that are part of this. And they tell these men, don't preach about Jesus any longer. I want you to see their reaction. If it's the before men, they don't have faith, they're full of pride, they're cowards, they run and hide like they've done before. But not this time. The after picture is quite different. There in verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, they're speaking to the Sanhedrin, they answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Can you imagine saying that to the Sanhedrin council? It reminds me of men as we talked about this morning, Daniel, when he talks to Nebuchadnezzar. And these people that would stand up to the rulers of their day, men who would say to the governing body, we will not stop doing what God has called us to do. That's what Peter and John say to Sanhedrin. We will not stop preaching Jesus Christ. Is there cowardice in these men any longer? Quite the contrary. These men are full of boldness. These men are not going to be detoured any longer. They're no longer cowards. These men are brave. That's the change you see. This after picture is very different. Not only do you see the boldness in chapter 5, you see that they're willing to even suffer and willing to rejoice because of such suffering. Uh, look there in Acts chapter 5. They will be called in again before the same council in the very next chapter, uh, down in verse uh, 40. Of course, they're in prison for a time, and then they're freed, and then uh, Gamaliel even kind of gives some semi-wise advice, says, look, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. So be careful, basically his advice to the Sanhedrin. So uh, this time they're going to call them in again, but they add a little bit more to it uh, there in verse 40. It says, They agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now I'm sure that there were occasions when we were growing up, I know I got many a spanking as a child, and I still did the same thing afterwards sometimes, but this wasn't that type of beating. I mean, they beat them to drive a message home. And the Jews would, would give 40 strikes minus one. Paul would speak of how he had been had, had to endure such uh, several occasions there in his life amongst all of his other trials. The reason why they would subtract one, they didn't want to go beyond and themselves be guilty of having to be beaten. When they beat somebody, sometimes people died from that. They beat these men and again said, do not preach Jesus. Stop going around telling people that we killed him. 
Stop spreading that around the world. Stop preaching Jesus. And they beat them to drive that message home. Now, how did they react? Look there, verse 41. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I've got to think in my mind that if I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the Sanhedrin, the sandals of the Sanhedrin, that these men have to be thinking, at least some of them, there's something wrong with these individuals. I mean, we're the Sanhedrin. We told them once, we told them twice, and we beat them to drive that message home, and they're happy about it. They're rejoicing. And from a human perspective, it would make no sense. Why would they be happy about being beaten? Because they were suffering shame for the name of Jesus, that they could partake in just part of the suffering comparable to what their Savior had done for them. Now, here's the other piece of this in verse 42. Did they stop? Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Stop preaching Jesus. Stop preaching Jesus. And they would not what? They would not stop preaching Jesus. Everywhere, every day, daily, house to house temple, they were preaching Jesus Christ. Their pride and their foolishness had turned into courage and humility. These men are very different. The before picture is very different from the after picture we now see. One more piece of this after picture we look at is an apostle out of due time. Uh, Paul called himself that in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. He was an apostle of Jesus, not just numbered with the original 12, just an apostle later. But Paul, like the other apostles, sacrificed everything for Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of that sacrifice and I think the words of Paul are just as fitting if we were to talk about any one of the other apostles, what they would end up giving for Jesus. But Paul exemplifies it very well as he writes about it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I the more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. If you were looking for the best Jew that you could find, you know, hey, let's add all the Jews, submit their resumes, and we're going to rank them, and we're going to see which Jew is the top qualified. That's Saul. I mean, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, he says. That's King Saul's tribe. I've got the same name as the king of the Old Testament. I was circumcised the eighth day. You can't find a more zealous man for me. I keep the law, or I kept the law down to the, the dotting of the I, the crossing the T. He says, I was working my way up. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. The Sanhedrin we talked about, Saul probably would have been a part of that one day. That's his course of life. What about all those things that he had gained and was going to gain potentially? Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet I count all things for loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Rubbish is kind of a British word. Garbage, trash. All those things I had gained, they're meaningless. They have no value. What I have gained in Christ is far more valuable. You think about what Paul says in his life and then the other apostles. How many of them left positions of authority, positions where they made money? Matthew was a tax collector. You had men that had fishing businesses. You had men that, that had these standings in society. Now, some of them may have not been 
you know, the elites like Paul was, but they still had homes, they still had families, some of them, and they still had to give up all those things to follow Jesus Christ. Before, they were thinking about self. Can I sit on the right and can, you, can my brother sit on the left? But now they're willing to give up everything for the cause of Jesus Christ. Men like Paul and the others, these apostles in this after picture, their selfishness has turned into sacrifice. Now think about this after picture. Now you have men that are bold. You have men that are courageous and humble. You've got men that are selfless and sacrificial. It's almost beyond belief. You know those before and after pictures, you see the before and you think, that's just not even the same person. That's the same thing I think about when I read about these men. The before picture and the after picture, it doesn't match up. How can these be the same men? They are the same men. What happened? What did they come to understand? What did they realize that forever transformed the way that they lived? Well, it comes back to where we started. It comes back to the faithfulness of God. It comes back to the fact that God keeps His promises. You know, man does not always keep his promises. There was an occasion we have there at Kansas Expressway on one Saturday morning a month a men's breakfast. Men meet on Saturday mornings, have a breakfast, and we have a devotional afterwards. It's a good time of fellowship, and they rotate the speakers. One Saturday for one month, I was supposed to be the speaker. And about mid-afternoon on Saturday, I think my son and I had been mowing the yard, working outside, and I guess it hit him first, and he said, Dad, wasn't men's breakfast this morning? Yeah, you're right, it was. That's the first time I thought of it that day, so that tells you I wasn't there for men's breakfast in the morning. Then my son followed up with, weren't you supposed to speak this morning? Yeah, you're right, I was. I mean, I just completely, it was just gone. I mean, it may have been in my phone calendar, it may have been whatever, but it did not register in my brain that I need to get up and go to men's breakfast. Hey, I'm supposed to speak this morning. It was just gone. It didn't hit me until it hit him, and he told me. And so I had to call up the man who organized it and say, look, I just completely forgot. I could have been there, and I just, I failed. So I'd made a commitment. I'd made a promise to speak that morning, and I broke that promise. I didn't intend to. I didn't purposely miss, but I still broke my promise. That happens sometimes. Despite our best intentions, we as men and women, as human beings, we don't always keep our promises. Maybe the car breaks down or you forget or whatever it is, and we just don't fulfill our word. We say we're going to, and then we fail to do it. We break our promises. Is it like that with God? Does God ever fail to keep his promises? Does God ever forget? Does God ever, well, I was going to be there for you, but my car broke down on the way. You know, the the divine throne chariot you read about in Ezekiel chapter 1. Well, one of the cherubim had a flat tire and he just couldn't get there. Had a broken wing. God ever have car trouble? Not at all. God is not like man. And I want you to think about that as it's related to this before and after of these men. There was a promise that was made to them. And I want you to think about that promise first. It's what was read just a moment ago uh, before the lesson in John chapter 2. And as you turn back there, remember Jesus himself when he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11 said, I am the resurrection and the life. He has that conversation there. Oh yeah, we believe in the resurrection. No, you don't understand. I am the resurrection is what Jesus said. He told them there that day that he was that resurrection. And this promise is made here in John chapter 2 that corresponds to that statement of Jesus as was read 
There in verse 18, they asked for a sign. And he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's John 2.19. And the Jews are like thinking, this isn't making sense. It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Well, they're thinking about the, the time period of the restoration of the temple. It's called Herod's temple because of all that he did to restore it, to bring it back to its former glory. So it's taken 46 years for us to get the temple to this point right now. And you're going to destroy and bring it back in three days? He wasn't talking about the physical temple, was he? Verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. I want you to keep a, a place, a marker there in John 2 because we're coming right back. But that's the promise that God made to his disciples. The promise that God made to what later are called the apostles. These men in this before picture, that promise was made to them. James and John who were seeking these positions, they heard that promise. They heard the word of God. They heard God's commitment that he would resurrect his son Jesus. That was the promise that was made. Was that promise kept? Well, look at Luke chapter 24. And again, we're going to come right back to John 2, but turn over for a moment. Luke 24. God made a promise of Jesus' resurrection, and you can see scripturally that that promise was kept. Uh, Luke 24, verse 3 and following. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again? Now listen to verse 8. And they remembered his words. They remembered the promise. They remembered at that moment when he was still alive, he promised us this. They didn't get it up to that point. Even when they're standing and looking in the empty grave, you've got two that are standing there, angels that are saying, why are you looking for him here? He promised you what? That he would rise from the grave. He promised to resurrect from the dead. God made a promise, and what do we see? God kept his promise. Now right back over in John 2, purposely left off verse 22 earlier because it shows us this connection. He was speaking of the temple of his body, verse 21. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It finally clicked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When they came to the tomb, what understanding did they come to that forever changed the way that they lived? They remembered his words. They remembered that God made a promise to resurrect Jesus from the dead. They remembered as they looked in that empty tomb that God kept that promise. Their dead, their dead leader, Jesus Christ, did not stay in that grave. He resurrected. The resurrection promise and the keeping of it is what forever changed these men. What did they learn? Well, they learned that God keeps his promises. We started there in Hebrews 10 for this purpose. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The apostles of Jesus Christ learned that. 
They learn that God is faithful. They learn that God keeps his promises. God's kept promise of Jesus' resurrection completely transformed them. They were no longer these men over here in this category of of little faith and pride and and those who were cowards. Now these men are bold and they rejoice when they're beaten. Uh, These men are brave. These men are sacrificial. God's keeping of his promise of Jesus' resurrection forever changed them in the way they lived. Verse 23 starts out of Hebrews 10 and says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. These men no longer wavered because they came to understand that God keeps his promises. That's the question for you. Do you understand that? Do you understand that God keeps his promise to the point that your faith is unwavering? If a snapshot was taken of you, which picture would it be, the before or would it be the after? When you examine your life, do you waver because you're unsure of God's promises? Or do you hold fast to what God has said? We have a book that gives us God's promises. God has said that Jesus Christ will come back again a second time. And when he comes back, this earth will be destroyed, completely burned up. But before that takes place, there will be a resurrection of the dead. And those who are alive and faithful will join those who are faithful dead that are resurrected to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Timothy 4, 17. And it says, thus will always be with the Lord. Paul was writing to Christians there in Thessalonica that were kind of wondering, well, what about the the faithful who have already died? He said, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with the promises of God that you know that as God said it, it will be. One day if we die in faith, we will go on to paradise, and then when the judgment follows, we will go on to that home in heaven. That's a promise of God to the faithful. Now there's a condition of that. We've got to meet God's standard and be faithful But the promised home in heaven is real. Do you believe it? And do you live accordingly? Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you believe because you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that God keeps his promises? I'm afraid sometimes we live more like the apostles before picture than we should be living like the apostles after picture. And I believe it comes down to the fact that we don't always believe that God keeps his promises. When you fully understand that, it will forever transform the way you live your life. I'll leave you with that this afternoon. I know that most were already here, if not all this morning. But again, it's a challenge to us from God's word. If your faith is lacking, if there's something missing in your life, as it's not as it should be, then get it right. Make sure you are faithful to God this moment before you leave this place. So if as a Christian there's something you need to get right, get it right today. If you're not a Christian, why not become one? hear that word, to believe that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose the third day, to have that change of mind that leads to a change of action, that repentance, to confess with your mouth and then with your life that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to be buried with your Savior in baptism. Uh, Romans 6 gives us that imagery that just as Jesus died and was buried and rose again, we must die to self and sin, we must be buried in the waters of baptism and we must rise so that we can walk in newness of life not yet done that, why not today? If you have a need, come as we stand.